Chapter Ten, Part Two, of My Path to Atheism, by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, On the Nature and Existence of God, Part Two. The nature of God. What is it? Infinite and absolute. He evades our touch without human will, without human intelligence, without human love. Where can his faculties, the very word is a misnomer, find a meeting-place with ours? Is he everything or nothing? One or many? We know not. We know nothing. Such is the conclusion into which we are driven by orthodoxy, with its pretended faith, which is credulity, with its pretended proofs, which are presumptions. It defines and maps out the perfections of deity, and they dissolve when we try to grasp them. Nowhere do these ideas hold water for a moment. Nowhere is this position defensible. Orthodoxy drives thinkers into atheism. Weary of its contradictions, they cry, There is no God. Orthodoxy's leading thinker lands us himself in atheism. No logical, impartial mind can escape from unbelief through the trapdoor opened by Dean Mansell. He has taught us reason, and we cannot suppress reason. The serpent intellect, as the Bishop of Peterborough calls it, has twined itself firmly round the tree of knowledge, and in that type we do not see, with the Hebrew, the face of death, but, with the older faiths, we reverence it as the symbol of life. There is another fact, an historical one, still on the destructive side, which appears to me to be of the gravest importance, and that is the gradual attenuation of the idea of God before the growing light of true knowledge. To the savage everything is divine. He hears one God's voice in the clap of the thunder, another's in the roar of the earthquake. He sees a divinity in the trees, a deity smiles at him from the clear depths of the river and the lake. Every natural phenomenon is the abode of a God. Every event is controlled by a God. Divine volition is at the root of every incident. To him the rule of the gods is a stern reality. If he offends them, they turn the forces of nature against him. The flood, the famine, the pestilence, are the ministers of the avenging anger of the gods. As civilization advances, the deities lessen in number. The divine powers become concentrated more and more in one being. And God rules over the whole earth, maketh the clouds his chariot, and reigns above the water-floods as a king. Physical phenomena are still his agents, working his will among the children of men. He rains great hailstones out of heaven on his enemies. He slays their flocks, and desolates their land. But his chosen are safe under his protection. Even although danger hem them in on every side, thou shalt not be afraid for any terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, for the pestilence that walketh in the darkness, nor the sickness that destroyeth in the noonday. A thousand shall fall beside thee, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. He shall defend thee under his wings, and thou shalt be safe under his feathers. Psalm 91, Prayer Book Experience contradicted this theory rather roughly, and it gave way slowly before the logic of facts. It is, however, still more or less prevalent among ourselves, as we see when the siege of Paris is proclaimed as a judgment on Parisian irreligion, and when the whole nation falls on its knees to acknowledge the cattle plague as the deserved punishment of its sins. 
the next step forward was to separate the physical from the moral, and to allow that physical suffering came independently of moral guilt or righteousness. The men crushed under the fallen tower of Siloam were not thereby proved to be more sinful than their countrymen. The birth of science rang the death knell of an arbitrary and constantly interposing supreme power. The theory of God as a miracle worker was dissipated. Henceforth, if God ruled at all, it must be as in nature, and not from outside of nature. He no longer imposed laws on something exterior to himself. The laws could only be the necessary expression of his own being. Laws were, further, found to be immutable in their working, changing not in accordance with prayer, but ever true to a hair's breadth in their action. Slowly but surely, prayer to God for the alteration of physical phenomena is being found to be simply a well-meant superstition. Nature swerves not for our pleading, nor falters in her path for our most passionate supplication. The reign of law in physical matters is becoming acknowledged even by theologians. As step by step the knowledge of the natural advances, so step by step does the belief in the supernatural recede. As the kingdom of science extends, so the kingdom of miraculous interference gradually disappears. The effects which of old were thought to be caused by the direct action of God are now seen to be caused by the uniform and calculable working of certain laws, laws which, when discovered, it is the part of wisdom implicitly to obey. Things which we used to pray for, we now work and wait for. And if we fail, we do not ask God to add his strength to ours, but we sit down and lay our plans more carefully. How is this to end? Is the future to be like the past, and is science finally to obliterate the conception of a personal God? It is a question which ought to be pondered in the light of history. Hitherto the supernatural has always been the make-weight of human ignorance. Is it, in truth, this and nothing else? I am forced with some reluctance to apply the whole of the above reasoning to every school of thought, whether nominally Christian or non-Christian, which regards God as a magnified man. The same stern logic cuts every way and destroys alike the Trinitarian and the Unitarian hypothesis, wherever the idea of God is that of a creator, standing, as it were, outside his creation. The liberal thinker, whatever his present position, seems driven infallibly to the above conclusions, as soon as he sets himself to realise his idea of his God. The deity must, of necessity, be that one and only substance out of which all things are evolved under the uncreated conditions and eternal laws of the universe. He must be, as Theodore Parker somewhat oddly puts it, the materiality of matter as well as the spirituality of spirit, i.e., these must both be products of this one substance, a truth which is readily accepted as soon as spirit and matter are seen to be but different modes of one essence. Thus we identify substance with the all-comprehending and vivifying force of nature, and in so doing we simply reduce to a physical impossibility the existence of the being described by the orthodox as a god possessing the attributes of personality. The deity becomes identified with nature, coextensive with the universe, but the God of the Orthodox no longer exists. We may change the signification of God, and use the word to express a different idea, but we can no longer mean by it a personal being, in the Orthodox sense, possessing an individuality which divides him from the rest of the universe. 
I say that I use these arguments with some reluctance, because many who have fought and are fighting nobly and bravely in the army of free thought, and to whom all free thinkers owe much honour, seem to cling to an idea of the deity, which, however beautiful and poetical, is not logically defensible, and in striking at the orthodox notion of God, one necessarily strikes also at all idea of a personal deity. There are some theists who have only cut out the Son and the Holy Ghost from the triune Jehovah, and have concentrated the deity in the person of the Father. They have returned to the old Hebrew idea of a God, the Creator, the Sustainer, only widening it into regarding God as the friend and father of all his creatures, and not of the Jewish nation only. There is much that is noble and attractive in this idea, and it will possibly serve as a religion of transition to break the shock of the change from the supernatural to the natural. It is reached entirely by a process of giving up. Christian notions are dropped, one after another, and the God who is believed in is the residuum. This theistic school has not gained its idea of God from any general survey of nature, or from any philosophical induction from facts. It has gained it only by stripping off from an idea already in the mind everything which is degrading and revolting in the dogmas of Trinitarianism. It starts, as I have noticed elsewhere, from a very noble axiom. If there be a God at all, he must be at least as good as his highest creatures. And thus is instantly swept away the Augustinian idea of a God, that monster invented by theological dialectics. But still the same axiom makes God in the image of man, and never succeeds in getting outside a human representation of the divinity. It starts from this axiom, and the axiom is prefaced by an if. It assumes God, and then argues fairly enough what his character must be, and this if is the very point on which the argument of this paper turns. If there be a God, all the rest follows. But is there a God at all, in the sense in which the word is generally used? And thus I come to the second part of my problem. Having seen that the orthodox idea of God is unreasonable and absurd, is there any idea of God worthy to be called an idea which is attainable in the present state of our faculties? The argument from design does not seem to me to be a satisfactory one. It either goes too far or not far enough. Why, in arguing from the evidences of adaptation, should we assume that they are planned by a mind? It is quite as easy to conceive of matter as self-existent, with inherent vital laws moulding it into varying phenomena, as to conceive of any intelligent mind directly modelling matter, so that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. It is, I know, customary to sneer at the idea of beautiful forms existing without a conscious designer, to parallel the adaptations of this world to the adaptations in machinery, and then triumphantly to inquire, if skill be inferred from the one, why ascribe the other to chance? We do not believe in chance, the steady action of law is not chance. The exquisite crystals which form themselves under certain conditions are not a fortuitous concourse of atoms. The only question is whether the laws which we all allow to govern nature are imminent in nature, or the outcome of an intelligent mind. If there be a lawmaker, is he self-existent, or does he in turn, as has been asked again and again by positivist, secularist and atheist, require a maker? 
if we think for a moment of the vast mind implied in the existence of a creator of the universe is it possible to believe that such a mind is the result of chance if man's mind imply a master mind how much more that of god of course the question seems an absurd one but it is quite as pertinent as the question about a world maker we must come to a stop somewhere and it is quite as logical to stop at one point as at another the argument from design would be valuable if we could prove a priori as mr gillespie attempted to do the existence of a deity this being proved we might then fairly argue deductively to the various apparent signs of mind in the universe again if we allow design we must ask how far does design extend if some phenomena are designed why not all and if not all on what principle can we separate that which is designed from that which is not if intellect and love reveal a design what is revealed by brutality and hate if the latter are not the result of design how did they become introduced into the universe i repeat that this argument implies either too much or too little there is but one argument that appears to me to have any real weight and that is the argument from instinct man has faculties which appear at present as though they were not born of intellect and it seems to me to be unphilosophical to exclude this class of facts from our survey of nature the nature of man has in it certain sentiments and emotions which reasonably or unreasonably sway him powerfully and continually they are in fact his strongest motive powers overwhelming the reasoning faculties with resistless strength true they need discipline and controlling but they do not need to be and they cannot be destroyed the sentiments of love of reverence of worship are not as yet reducible to logical processes they are intuitions spontaneous emotions incomprehensible to the keen and cold intellect they may be laughed at or denied but they still exist in spite of all they avenge themselves when they are not taken into account by ruining the best laid plans and they are continually bursting the cords with which reason strives to tie them down i do not for a moment pretend to deny that these intuitions will as our knowledge of psychology increases be reducible to strict laws we call them instincts and intuitions simply because we are unable to trace them to their source and this vague expression covers the vagueness of our ideas therefore intuition is not to be accepted as a trustworthy guide but it may suggest an hypothesis and this hypothesis must then be submitted to the stern verification of observed facts we are not as yet able to say to what the instinct in man to worship points or what reality answers to his yearning increased knowledge will we may hope reveal to us where there lies the true satisfaction of this instinct so long as the yearning is only an instinct it cannot pretend to be logically defensible or claim to lay down any rule of faith but still i think it is well to point out that this instinct exists in man and exists most strongly in some of the noblest souls Quote, is there in man any such instinct may not the general tendency to worship a deity everywhere be the result of the influence gained by priests over the mind by the play of the mysterious unknown and hereafter upon susceptible imaginations besides what are we to say of the immense number of philosophical buddhists and brahmins for whose comfort or moral guidance the idea of a god or a hereafter 
is felt to be quite unnecessary. They cannot comprehend it, and consequently acts of worship to God would be deemed by them fanatical. It is traditionalists who either do not think at all, or think only within a narrow creed-bound circle, that are most devoted to worshipping deity, and if so, may not the whole history of worship have its origin in superstition and priestcraft? In that case, the theory of an instinct of worship falls to the ground. Note by the editor. End quote. Of all the various sentiments which are thus, at present, intuitional, none is so powerful, none so overmastering as this instinct to worship, this sentiment of religion. It is as natural for man to worship as to eat. He will do it, be it reasonable or unreasonable. Just as the baby crams everything into his mouth, so does man persist in worshipping something. It may be said that the baby's instinct does not prove that he is right in trying to devour a matchbox. True, but it proves the existence of something eatable. So fetish worship, polytheism, theism, do not prove that man has worshipped rightly, but they do not prove the existence of something worshipable. The argument does not, of course, pretend to amount to a demonstration. It is nothing more than the suggestion of an analogy. Are we to find that the supply is correlated to the demand throughout nature, and yet believe that this hitherto invariable system is suddenly altered when we reach the spiritual part of man? I do not deny that this instinct is hereditary, and that it is fostered by habit. The idea of reverence for God is transmitted from parent to child. It is educated into an abnormal development, and thus almost indefinitely strengthened. But yet it does appear to me that the bent to worship is an integral part of man's nature. This instinct has also sometimes been considered to have its root in the feeling that one's individual self is but a part of a stupendous whole, that the so-called religious feeling which is evoked by a grand view or a bright starlight night is only the realisation of personal insignificance, and the reverence which rises in the soul in the presence of the mighty universe of which we form a part. Whatever the root and the significance of this instinct, there can be no doubt of its strength. There is nothing rouses men's passion, as does theology. For religion men rush on death more readily and joyfully than for any other cause. Religious fanaticism is the most fatal, the most terrible power in the world. In studying history, I also see the upward tendency of the race, and note that current which Mr. Matthew Arnold has called that stream of tendency, not ourselves, which makes for righteousness. Of course, if there be a conscious God, this tendency is a proof of his moral character, since it would be the outcome of his laws. But here again an argument which would be valuable, were the existence of God already proved, falls blunted from the iron wall of the unknown. The same tendency upwards would naturally exist in any realm of law, although the law were an unconscious force. For righteousness is nothing more than obedience to law, and where there is obedience to law, nature's mighty forces lend their strength to man, and progress is secured. Only by obedience to law can advance be made, and this rule applies, of course, to morality as well as to physics. Physical righteousness is obedience to physical laws, Moral righteousness is obedience to moral laws. Just as physical laws are discovered by the observation of natural phenomena, so must moral laws be discovered by the observation of social phenomena. That which increases the general happiness is right. 
that which tends to destroy the general happiness is wrong. Utility is the test of morality, but a law must not be drawn from a single fact or phenomenon. Facts must be carefully collated, and the general laws of morality drawn from a generalization of facts. But this subject is too large to enter upon here, and it is only hinted at in order to note that, although there is a moral tendency apparent in the course of events, it is rather a rash assumption to take it for granted that the power in question is a conscious one. It may be, and that, I think, is all we can justly and reasonably say. Again, as regards love, I have protested above against the easiness which talks glibly of the supreme love while shutting its eyes to the supreme agony of the world. But here, in putting forward what may be said on the other side of the question, I must remark that there is a possible explanation for sorrow and sin which is consistent with love given immortality of man and beast, and the future gain may then outweigh the present loss. But we are bound to remember that we can only have a hope of immortality, we have no demonstration of it, and this is therefore only an assumption by which we escape from a difficulty. We ought to be ready to acknowledge also that there is love in nature, although there is cruelty too. There is the sunshine as well as the storm, and we must not fix our eyes on the darkness alone and deny the light. In mother love, in the love of friends, loyal through all doubt, true in spite of danger and difficulty, strongest when most sorely tried, we see gleams of so divine, so unearthly a beauty, that our hearts whisper to us of an universal heart pulsating throughout nature, which at these rare moments we cannot believe to be a dream. But there seems also to be a vague idea that love and other virtues could not exist unless derived from the love, etc. It is true that we do conceive certain ideals of virtue which we personify, and to which we apply various terms implying affection. We speak of a love of truth, devotion to freedom, and so on. These ideals have, however, a purely subjective existence. They are not objective realities. There is nothing answering to these conceptions in the outside world, nor do we pretend to believe in their individuality. But when we gather up all our ideals, our noblest longings, and bind them into one vast ideal figure, which we call by the name of God, then we at once attribute to it an objective existence, and complain of coldness and hardness if its reality is questioned, and we demand to know if we can love an abstraction. The noblest souls do love abstractions, and live in their beauty and die for their sake. There appears also to be a possibility of a mind in nature, although we have seen that intelligence is, strictly speaking, impossible. There cannot be perception, memory, comparison, or judgment. But may there not be a perfect mind, unchanging, calm, still? Our faculties fail us when we try to estimate the deity, and we are betrayed into contradictions and absurdities. But does it therefore follow that he is not? It seems to me that to deny his existence is to overstep the boundaries of our thought-power, almost as much as to try and define it. We pretend to know the unknown if we declare him to be the unknowable. Unknowable to us at present, yes. Unknowable for ever in other possible stages of existence? We have reached a region into which we cannot penetrate. Here all human faculties fail us. We bow our heads on the threshold of the unknown. Quote, and the ear of man cannot hear, and the eye of man cannot see. But if we could see and hear, 
this vision, were it not he. End quote. Thus sings Alfred Tennyson, the poet of metaphysics. If we could see and hear, alas, it is always an if. We come back to the opening of this essay. What is the practical result of our ideas about the divinity, and how do these ideas affect the daily working life? What conclusions are we to draw from the undeniable fact that, even if there be a personal God, his nature and existence are beyond our faculties? that clouds and darkness are round about him, that he is veiled in eternal silence and reveals himself not to men. Surely the obvious inference is that, if he does really exist, he desires to conceal himself from the inhabitants of our world. I repeat that if the deity exist, he does not wish us to know of his existence. There may be, in the very nature of things, an impossibility of his revealing himself to men. We may have no faculties with which to apprehend him. Can we reveal the stars and the rippling expanse of ocean to the sightless limpet on the rock? Whether this be so or not, certain is it that the deity does not reveal himself. Either he cannot or he will not. And the reason, I am granting for the moment, for argument's sake his personal existence, is not far to seek. It is blazed upon the face of history. For what has been the result of theology upon the whole? It has turned men's eyes from earth to fix them on heaven. It has bid them be careless of the temporal, while luring them to grasp at the eternal. It has induced multitudes to lavish fervent sentiment upon a conception framed by priests of an incomprehensible God, while diverting their strength from the plain duties which humanity has before it. It has taught them to live for the world to come, when they should live for the world around them. It has made earth's wrongs endurable with the hope of the glory to be revealed. Wisely indeed would the deity hide himself, when even a phantom of him has wrought such a fatal mischief, and never will real and steady progress be secured until men acquiesce in this beneficent law of their nature, which draws a stern circle of the limits of religious thought, and bids them concentrate their attention on the work they have to do in this world, instead of being for ever peering into and brooding over the world beyond the grave. What is to be our conception of morality? Is it to base itself on obedience to God, or is it to be sought for itself and its effects? When we admit that God is beyond our knowing, morality becomes at once necessarily grounded on utility, or the natural adaptation of certain feelings and actions to promote the general welfare of society. As no revelation is given to us as one infallible standard of right and wrong, we must form our morality for ourselves, from thought and from experience. For example, our moral nature, as educated under the highest civilization, tells us that lying is wrong. With this hypothesis in our minds, we study facts and discover that lying causes mistrust, anarchy and ruin. Thence we lay down, as a moral law, lie not at all. The science of morality must be content to grow like other sciences. First an hypothesis, round which to group our facts, then from the collected and collated facts, reasoning up to a solid law. Scientific morality has this great advantage over revealed, that it stands on firm, unassailable ground. New facts will alter its details, but can never touch its method. Like all other sciences, it is at once positive and progressive. Quote, all men do not think lying is wrong, e.g. thugs and old Spartans. 
Therefore it is not our moral nature that intuitively tells us thus, but our moral nature as instructed by the moral ideas prevailing in the society in which we happen to be living. Note by the editor. End quote. Is our mental attitude to be kneeling or standing? When we admit that the deity is veiled from us, how can we pray? When we see that law is inexorable, of what use to protest against its absolute sway? When we feel that all, including ourselves, are but modes of being, which is one and universal, and in which we live and move, how shall we pray to that which is close to us as our own souls, part of our very selves, inseparable from our thoughts, sharing our consciousness? as well talk aloud to ourselves as pray to the universal essence. Children cry for what they want, men and women work for it. There are two points of view from which we may regard prayer. From the one it is a piece of childishness only, from the other it is sheer impertinence. Regarding nature's mighty order, her grand, silent, unvarying march, the importunity which frets against her changeless progress, is a mark of the most extreme childishness of mind. It shows that complete irreverence of spirit which cannot conceive the idea of a greatness before which the individual existence is as nothing, and that infantile conceit which imagines that its own plans and playthings rival in importance the struggles of nations and the interests of distant worlds. Regarding nature's laws as wiser than our own whims, the idea which finds its outlet in prayer is a gross impertinence. Who are we that we should take it on ourselves to remind nature of her work God of his duty. Is there any impertinence so extreme as prayer which pleads with the deity? There is only one kind of prayer which is reasonable, and that is the deep, silent adoration of the greatness and beauty and order around us, as revealed in the realms of non-rational life and in humanity. As we bow our heads before the laws of the universe and mould our lives into obedience to their voice, we find a strong, calm peace steal over our hearts a perfect trust in the ultimate triumph of the right, a quiet determination to make our lives sublime. Before our own high ideals, before those lives which show us how high the tides of divine life have risen in the human world, we stand with hushed voice and veiled face. From them we draw strength to emulate, and even dare struggle to excel. The contemplation of the ideal is true prayer. It inspires, it strengthens, it ennobles. The other part of prayer is work, from contemplation to labour, from the forest to the street. Study nature's laws, conform to them, work in harmony with them, and work becomes a prayer and a thanksgiving, an adoration of the universal wisdom, and a true obedience to the universal law. Is the mainspring of our actions to be the idea of duty to God, or of the loyalty to law and to man's well-being? We cannot serve God in any real sense. We are awed before the unknown, but we cannot serve it. For the mighty, for the incomprehensible, what can we do? But we can serve man, aye, and he needs our service, service of brain and hand, service untiring and unceasing, service through life and unto death. The race to which we belong, our own families and kinsfolk, and then the community at large, has the first claim on our allegiance a claim from which nothing can release us until death drops a veil over our work. Surely I may claim that my subject is not an unpractical one, and that our ideas of the nature and existence of God influence our lives in a very real way. 
if I have substituted a different basis of morality for that on which it now stands, if I have suggested a different theory of prayer and offered a different motive for duty, surely these changes affect the whole of human life. And if one by one these theories are denied by the orthodox, and they reject them because they sever human life from that which is called revealed religion, is not my position justified that the ideas we hold of God are the ruling forces of our lives, that it is of primary importance to the welfare of mankind that a false theory on this point should be destroyed and a more reasonable faith accepted? Will any one exclaim, You are taking all beauty out of human life, all hope, all warmth, all inspiration, you give us cold duty for filial obedience and inexorable law in the place of God. All beauty from life. Is there, then, no beauty in the idea of forming part of the great life of the universe? No beauty in conscious harmony with nature? No beauty in faithful service? No beauty in ideals of every virtue? All hope? Why, I give you more than hope, I give you certainty. If I bid you labour for this world, it is with the knowledge that this world will repay you a thousandfold, because society will grow purer, freedom more settled, law more honoured, life more full and glad. What is your hope? A heaven in the clouds? I point to a heaven attainable on earth. All warmth? What? You serve warmly a God unknown and invisible, in a sense the projected shadow of your own imaginings, and can only serve coldly your brother whom you see at your side. There is no warmth in brightening the lot of the sad, in reforming abuses, in establishing equal justice for rich and poor. You find warmth in the church, but none in the home. Warmth in imagining the cloud glories of heaven, but none in creating substantial glories on earth. All inspiration. If you want inspiration to feeling, to sentiment, perhaps you had better keep to your Bible and your creeds. If you want inspiration to work, go and walk through the east of London or the back streets of Manchester. You are inspired to tenderness as you gaze at the wounds of Jesus, dead in Judea long ago, and find no inspiration in the wounds of men and women dying in the England of today. You have tears to shed for him, but none for the sufferer at your doors. His passion arouses your sympathies, but you see no pathos in the passion of the poor. Duty is colder than filial obedience. What do you mean by filial obedience? Obedience to your ideal of goodness and love, is it not so? then how is duty cold? I offer you ideals for your homage. Here is truth for your mistress, to whose exaltation you shall devote your intellect. Here is freedom for your general, for whose triumph you shall fight. Here is love for your inspirer, who shall influence your every thought. Here is man for your master, not in heaven but on earth, to whose service you shall consecrate every faculty of your being. Inexorable law in the place of God, Yes, a stern certainty that you shall not waste your life, yet gather a rich reward at the close, that you shall not sow misery, yet reap gladness, that you shall not be selfish, yet be crowned with love, nor shall you sin, yet find safety in repentance. True, our creed is a stern one, stern with the beautiful sternness of nature, but if we be in the right, look to yourselves. Laws do not check their action for your ignorance. Fire will not cease to scorch because you did not know. We know nothing beyond nature. We judge the future by the present and the past. We are content to work now and let the work to come wait until it appears as the work to do. 
we find that our faculties are sufficient for fulfilling the tasks within our reach, and we cannot waste time and strength in gazing into impenetrable darkness. We must needs fight against superstitions because they hinder the advancement of the race, but we will not fall into the error of opponents and try to define the undefinable. End of chapter 10, part 2